You're listening to the River City Church Podcast. Our desire is that you know Jesus, experience freedom, find community, and discover purpose. For more information, check us out on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co. Here's the message. We've got a new series we're starting tonight, God's Cure for the Common Life. Cure for the Common Life. We're going to start in Exodus 3. Exodus 3. And uh, this is a familiar story for us, but it's one of my favorites, as if you haven't noticed. Uh, I love to talk about guys like David and guys like Moses because there's so much about their relationship with, uh, with God that we see, more than we see with a lot of people because we see so much of their story and their history. And uh, it, in Exodus 3, it's kind of fast-forwarded to the latter part of Moses' uh, life, the latter 40 years. He would live to 120. Uh, so he was just getting started at 80. So if you feel like you haven't gotten started in life, just look at Moses. He was just getting started at 80. Uh, at 40 years old, at, uh, he tried to take matters into his own hands and became a fugitive, killed an Egyptian, ran uh, and fled to a place called Midian. Midian means strife. And he would spend the next 40 years of his life in the desert in a place of not only a, a, a natural desert, but a barren place in his own spiritual life, kind of just settling in, getting used to so much less than what I believe he was called to and what we'll see he's called to. Uh, he becomes a shepherd, and while he's there for the next 40 years, he would spend from 40 to 80 taking care of uh, the family business. He married into a shepherd's family, married Jethro's daughter, and he took care of their sheep. He's, he's taking care of Jethro's sheep, and he's out on the backside of the desert. It says in Exodus 3, verse 1, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, uh, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert. You know, I've, I grew up in the desert, and the desert's interesting. I don't know what the back of the desert looks like, but it, evidently it's not very uh, it's not very great. But he goes to the back of the desert and comes to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire and the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not draw near to this place. Take the sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is Holy ground, holy ground. We're going to talk about that word holy tonight. That word holy is a Hebrew word, kadosh. It's the first mention in the entire Bible of the word holy, the first time. And the, this, in, in the study of Scripture, many times the first mention of something both introduces a concept, a word, an idea, but it also defines it or sets the tone for how that is often used throughout the rest of the Bible. And this word holy is important because it defines, I think there's a lot of people that don't know what holy means. I didn't. I didn't know what it meant when I first started reading the Bible and really wanted to understand that. And ever since I got a hold of what uh, that word carries and what it means, it changed the way I saw God. It changed the way I lived my life. 
life, it affected everything else. And holy is not just, and we've oftentimes reduced it, you know, or even misdefined it from a lot of externals. So we used to, in some circles, you know, we thought, you know, holiness is, is just wearing a certain outfit or dressing like it's 1850. But you can dress like it's 1850 and not be holy. But here's what we see holy is defined as. It's the Hebrew word kadosh that means different from common. So the opposite of holy is not even unholy. It's common. See, I can understand if it's unholy. If that's the opposite of holy, it, it kind of, I can kind of put in my mind what those two categories look like. But the way the Bible defines holy is something even broader. It's that holy is different than common. That means that if something's common, it's not holy. And if it's holy, it's not common. And when the Bible starts with this, it introduces this idea by defining not even a, a person yet, but God defines a place as holy, and the reason this place is holy, he says, take off the sandals off your feet. Don't treat this as common, is what he's letting him know. This is not ordinary. This is not a, just any place. This is a place that God's presence has shown up, and that's why it's holy. The ground, the bush, everything that's there is set apart. It's not common anymore. Why? Because it's been touched by the presence of Almighty God, the God who is holy, who is different from common. It means to be cut out from the ordinary, a cut above all the rest. So what holiness is, we see it in the Bible, of course, used of God to describe God. It's, it's the, the Bible over and over ascribes this attribute of God's, uh, who he is, his person. It's, he's different from common. He's a cut above. He's not just a cut above. He's far above. And so Psalm 22, 3 says, you are holy, enthroned in the praises of your people. Our worship is a response to the holiness of God. That's why oftentimes when we don't have a view of God's holiness, there's often a lack of Worship. When I lose sight of his holiness, I often lose the, the drive of holiness. I begin to treat God as common instead of one that's worthy of everything that I can give to him. Because he's holy. You are enthroned on the praises of your people. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the Lord, the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place with him. Not only does he dwell there, but he invites us to himself. And he describes who dwells with him. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite, that is a repentant or broken uh, heart, contrite. He who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the hearts of the contrite ones. Uh, Leviticus 10 Moses and Aaron learned this lesson later on in Moses' story as they would lead Israel and begin to introduce. In fact, the book of Leviticus is one of the hardest books for many Christians to, to understand and even just, frankly, just to navigate. Uh, but it actually was an important book for Israel, so important that they would start six-year-olds. It was the very first book they would read in the Old Testament. 
the first book of the Torah they would start with would be Leviticus. And, and the reason for that was Leviticus was God's message to Israel under the Mosaic Covenant to say, this is what holy looks like, and you're a holy people set apart because of something that's in your midst, and it's the most important thing, it's the presence of God. And so, so here's what he says, um, and they had this moment where Aaron, two of his four sons, did not regard the presence of God as holy. And here's what it says in verse 3. Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke to, to him, saying, By those who come near to me, I must, not, not maybe, but I must be regarded as holy. I think this is so important because, you know, I believe it's very important that we obviously understand that God's available for every one of us. That's, that's part of the message of the gospel of Jesus, that he's made a way for every single one of us to find forgiveness and salvation and be invited into a relationship with God. But sometimes in the, in the process of us uh, articulating and saying, listen, he's available for all. Come as we are. We need Jesus. And do you believe that, church? We sometimes can lose sight of the fact that God is holy. He's God. He's incredibly approachable. He's a friend closer than a brother. I can come with, I can be as real with God as anybody else in my life. God knows me more than I know myself, and he loves me more than anyone ever will. He knows the good, the bad, the ugly. He knows all of it. But he also, he says, I, I must be regarded as holy. That means that there's, we, we respond to God as recognizing he's holy. It's amazing how those that walked with Jesus, those who were close with Jesus, even friends of Jesus, John was one of them. And John would, in the book of Revelation, see Jesus like he had never seen him before. And he's so impacted by the holiness of Jesus, he falls on his face as if he was dead. He just can't, he, he can't handle himself because of the majesty. I don't want us to ever lose sight of the greatness and the holiness of God. Not only is God holy, but he has made his people holy. What defined the burning bush and made that place, that ground holy, was not even what it could or couldn't do. It was the fact that the presence of God was in its midst. And that means that that place was now set apart. What makes you and I have an uncommon life is what sets us apart as a believer, what sets you apart. The day you say yes to Jesus is not just that you, you know, have, have a new life or have a new experience or even just a new destination, have a home in heaven, which I'm thankful for, but now that God himself dwells in our lives and we become the house of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We become set apart, and the Bible describes his people, you and me, as a chosen generation, a holy priesthood. He describes his people that way. Because a holy church, a holy people, are a people that are filled with and reflect the nature of God. That's First Peter 2.9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. So I want to give you, uh, as we start this series, how we live an uncommon life. I'm going to give you four very simple points tonight uh, to give you maybe some just a, a foundation here as we get started. But the first one is this. Number one is to live set apart. To live set apart. To live set apart. That's what it means to be holy, is that we are now set apart for God. 
that now my life is no longer common or ordinary, but I'm actually chosen by God, called by God, and I have a purpose from God. So do you. Every person alive has a calling from God, but we only find it and discover it as we respond to Jesus and our lives become set apart. He actually said in the New Testament that we were not our own, we were bought with a price. June 9th, 2007, something significant changed in Brian's life. A beautiful woman up front said, yes, I do. And, and what happened was we were now set apart. <laughs> Your relationship with Jesus... Marriage is actually meant to be a picture of what, what we have in the church, the bride, with the bridegroom, Jesus. That we are now set apart. He's paid the price to the cross, redeemed us, purchased us, and now we're set apart. And when you live set apart, you don't settle for common. My, 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 uh, my parents, my mom, had this like really expensive china in a hutch when I was a kid that we couldn't use all year except for Thanksgiving and Christmas. It's the only time we brought it out. We didn't bring out paper plates. Sometimes I would have rather brought out paper plates. We brought out the fine china. It was set apart for something uncommon. And when you recognize that your life, see, that's why when you realize why this is so important, when you realize you're set apart and you live set apart for Jesus, he won't settle for less. He won't settle for what's common and ordinary because you're called to something more. There's decisions I've made over the years. There's choices I've made. And it's not been about what I couldn't do. It's been about who I'm set apart for. I didn't spend a lot of time going, oh, I can't do this, man, being a Christian, I can't do this, I can't say that, I can't go there, I can't watch this. Because when people approach life like that, the, in, instead of, what ends up happening is they're not dealing with a desire on the inside, and they go, well, I really want to do that. Religion says I can't, but I really want to do that. And so we end up conflicted. And instead of recognizing when I'm Jesus, when I belong to Jesus, when I'm his and not my own, it's no longer about what I can't do. It's about who I belong to. And those things are no longer have a hold like they used to. Okay. Second Corinthians 6, real quick, in the Message Bible. I've got more than I can cover tonight. But it says this, don't become partners with those who reject God. How can, a, how can you make a partnership out of right and wrong? That's not partnership, that's a war. Is light best friends with the dark? Does Christ go strolling with the devil? Do trust and mistrust hold hands? Uh, who, who would you think, uh, who would think of setting up a pagan, pagan idols in God's holy temple? Uh, but that is exactly what we are. Each of us is a temple in whom God lives. God himself put it this way, and here's the, the promise he quotes. Uh, I'll live in them, move into them. I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. 
So he says in response to that, leave the corruption and compromise. Leave it for good, says God. Link up with those, uh, don't link up with those that will pollute you. I want you all for myself. I'll be a father to you. You'll be sons and daughters to me. And the very next chapter, in the very first verse, is connected to this thing that has just been read. With promises like these. What were the promises? That he would dwell with us, walk with us, and dwell in us. God's presence is the difference maker. With promises like these, let us pull on, dear friends, let's make a clean break with everything that defiles or distracts us, both within and without, and let's make our entire lives fit in holy temples for the worship of God. You know, it's, it's interesting. You know, I, I'm a mountain guy. I love to go up to the mountains, and I love... I remember in, in Phoenix, you drive an hour and a half north or east and some of the best mountains, pine trees, gorgeous. And it was interesting, even there, even leaving Phoenix going up, as you're leaving and, and going to even a higher elevation, you can see this like layer of pollution from the city. And then you get up into the mountains and there's just, the air feels fresher. <laughs> and, and you just notice a difference. And it's interesting how when you're in it, you get used to it. And when you step outside of it and you get a breath of actual fresh air, you realize the difference. And that's what it's like to come into the presence of God. Some of us, even as we worship and we come into this environment, we respond and we go, I, I, I remember years ago, one of my cousins got married and her husband had a history of, of, of drug abuse and all kinds of things in his life. And, and when, he, when we prayed for him, and um, I think he had a back problem and, and God had healed him. And he was, at that point, taking some kind of, kind of painkiller. I don't know. But, but I remember while we're praying for him, he goes, what is this I'm feeling right now? He's like, I don't know what this is. What am I feeling right now? And he doesn't have language for it. He says, I used to take so many drugs to feel this good. <laughs> it's the presence of God. Yeah. It's getting out of the city and getting up on the mountain for a moment, and you go, oh, there's fresh air. <laughs> okay. So, number two, I got to keep going. Number two is live on fire. Live set apart, number one. Number two is live on fire. Leviticus 6.6, 6, uh, something that happened throughout the Bible is they would build, when, when, especially in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when they would meet with God, they would often build altars. And they would build an altar, and it would be a place where they would offer some kind of a sacrifice, and... In the, in the worship Israel had towards God, they, would, they had the tabernacle and then the temple later in their story. And both of these started with an altar. So the very first thing you would encounter as you came in was the altar. And it was the place where the offering was, was given to God. And there were two types of offerings. There was a sin offering that would be brought for atonement. So, so when, in the old covenant, when someone had sinned, they would bring a, an, an offering, and it was to be a lamb or a ram without spot. And so they would bring it to the priest, and the priest would do something very important. Now, in the Old Testament, these are types and shadows of what we have in Christ. We don't bring a, a lamb or a ram. We have the Lamb of God. We have Jesus. And here's why this is important. They would bring the ram or the, the spotless lamb, and they would bring it to the priest, and the priest would do something. The priest would examine the quality, not of the offerer, but of the offering. They wouldn't examine whether or not the person was worthy 
Because the fact that they were bringing an offering meant they, the sin offering was they were turning to God. They didn't consider themselves worthy. They felt guilt and shame or whatever. And so they're, they're responding and they're bringing the sin offering. And when they brought the sin offering, the priest would examine not the sufficiency of the offerer. That's good news, church. But the sufficiency of the offering. Because when we come to God, he's not inspecting whether or not we're worthy of the lamb. But he's looking at the sufficiency of the lamb. And your forgiveness is not based on you, it's based on him. We come to Jesus. That's what repentance is. We come to Jesus. God, I need you. Forgive me. We turn to God. And when he looks at us, he doesn't go, well, do they deserve it? He looks at a cross and a lamb that was offered who was without spot and without wrinkle. And he paid the price for all of our sin. That was the only kind of offering. They also brought a burnt offering. It was something for worship. One was a substitute for, but the other was an act of worship. And so they would take this and place it on the altar, and the offering had to have fire to cook it. Because I personally, this is not in the Bible, I believe that God likes barbecue. And, And so they would... But you had to have fire. I want you to see this. Leviticus 6. Uh, he says, you shall, um, let's jump down to verse, verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command Aaron and his sons, the priests. Uh, this is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the, offered on the hearth on the altar all night until morning. And the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. Verse 12. And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. No, no. This is why I want you to catch this. Verse 13. A fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. When you recognize the magnitude of who it is that has called you and what he's called you to do, you live on fire. God hasn't called us to ordinary fireless altars. He hasn't called us to cold dead religion. He's called us to be ignited. Somewhere along the way we get used to God, but we're never called to be used to God. We're never called to be professional Christians. It doesn't work. I'm sorry. <laughs> and, and the more on fire I am for Jesus, the better husband I am. The better father I am. And so, so when we live uncommon, we live set apart, and we live ignited and on fire for God. But to stay on fire. See, any, any, anybody can be on fire for a moment. But I want to, that's why I've, I've told you, I love to be around people. I, I talked about some of my, my mentors last week. I, I want to be around people that are still burning at 93. Like, they've, they've been through some stuff, they've taken some hits, but they're still more on, they're, they're even more on fire for Jesus now at 93 than they were then. I want to love God more at the end of my life than even at the day I said yes to Jesus. But just like the priests, the reason I point to this Old Testament picture in Leviticus 6 is they had to keep the wood added to the fire every day. Every morning, the priest had a job. Keep fire 
burning on the altar, and to keep fire burning, you had to add fuel. If I don't stay fueled, that's why it's so important as a Christian, not that I have to just check off a box and go, okay, I did my Bible reading for today, and I I prayed for 15 minutes, and I did this. No, no, every time I'm in the Word, I'm adding a log to the fire. Every time I'm spending time with Jesus in prayer, I'm adding fuel to the fire. Every time I've got Spotify playing, I'm listening to worship. I'm adding a log to the fire. Every time we gather as the church. See, this is for me. This is for all of us that that we've got to keep adding fuel to the fire. If you don't, the fire burns out. It's that simple. All right. Uh, number three, hold nothing back for Jesus. Hold nothing back. Uh, Genesis 22. Um, Genesis 22. I, we won't have time to read the whole thing, but I want you to see this. So it's, it's an interesting story of an altar because it starts with a very difficult request. And it, it's, it's Abraham having a conversation with God. He wakes up one morning. And where's Abraham at in his story? Well, you know, Abraham prayed for a, a child for really probably his entire adult life. But especially towards the latter part of his life, he realizes I have nobody to pass on my inheritance to except a servant in my household. And so he calls, cries out to God and he says, God, give me a son. Give me an heir. And it's at a stage where he's past the age of having children, his wife as well. And God gives him a promise, you're going to have a son. And God gives him that promise, and 20 years of waiting later, 20 years from when God said you're going to have a promised son to when Isaac shows up on the scene, Abraham waits. So when God fulfills that promise, it's a big deal. When God, you know, I've, I've prayed for stuff for 20 minutes. I'm like, oh God, where is this? 20 years he's waited, and now he finally embraces his son Isaac. And in Genesis 22, some, some commentaries and, and, and scholars believe this was later enough in the story that Isaac is not a child or a boy, but a young man. So he's not only had this promise, but he's lived with the promise. He's seen the promise growing into its potential, and he sees his son about to be in, experience you know, his own life and carry forward the covenant and the promise of God. And then one day, God comes to Abraham in Genesis 22, and God says, give me the promise. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And God said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said to him, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. You know, this is the only time ever that we see something like this. And the reason for this is, of course, we know the story of redemption. God never asked for anything like this, but he was illustrating something because one day God would give his son for us. But he calls to Abraham and I don't know if you've ever had God ask you to surrender something or make a decision to trust God in an area that might cost you. But that's where Abraham is. 
It's not just any old request. It's not just any old. It's God saying, Abraham, the the promise that you love, the promise you prayed for, the promise you've waited for, I want you to give that promise back to me. Now, if I'm Abraham, because I've 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 had some things over the years where God's been like, hey, lay this down, trust me here, give that to me, surrender this. And and while it's not on this magnitude, it was still difficult for me. Do you know, I want you to see what happens with Abraham. I love this. He tells him to go to the land of Moriah. So Abraham, verse 3, rose early in the morning. He rose early in the morning. He didn't wait. He didn't think about it. He didn't, he didn't go, well, that must have been some bad pizza I had yesterday. There's no way that was God talking to me. <laughs> if anybody could have thought that, it was, probably would have been Abraham at this moment. But, here's, you know, Abraham quickly arises because he trusts God. He quickly arises because he's obeying. You know, delayed obedience is not any different than disobedience because usually it ends up with me talking myself out of faith. So Abraham rose early in the morning took two of his young men, Isaac his son, split the wood of the burnt offering and rose to the place which God had told him. They get there. He tells his servants, stay here with the donkey. The young lad and I will go up and worship and we'll come back to you. So he takes the wood. This is verse six. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son, just like God would give his son a cross that Jesus would carry up a hill to call Golgotha. The son is carrying the wood of his own sacrifice. He gets to the top of the hill. He prepares it. Isaac asks, "Um, hey, dad, where's the ram? Where's the lamb? Where's the offering? I'm noticing we're missing a couple things. And God says to him something very important. He says, God himself will provide. God himself will provide. He trusts God implicitly. So God prepares it, he gets the whole scene ready, and and he's ready to go, and an angel, just before Abraham offers his son, the angel of the Lord says, stop, don't touch him, because now I know that you won't withhold even this promised son. See, Abraham was willing to even give to God the very thing that was his greatest heart's desire, and that's actually what qualified him to keep it. Because he didn't hold too tightly to the promise. See, holding nothing back for God means that I live my life in a way where I'm going to trust God implicitly. I'm going to give God an unqualified yes. And many people don't experience all that I believe God has for them because they have, they have a yes with conditions. But when I hold nothing back because God is worthy and he's good and he's faithful... It positions our heart to receive everything that God had promised. And I love this because right as Abraham gets stopped by the angel, he hears something behind him. It's a ram caught in the thicket. God did provide the sacrifice. Of course, this is all pointing to the cross and pointing to redemption story as God would not withhold his own son for us and Jesus would carry the cross up the hill and all those things. But I want you to see this. He turns around and he takes the ram who's been caught in the thicket. And it's interesting, he didn't notice it there. But you know what? I believe this is, again, my opinion, just like I believe God likes barbecue. 
I believe that every step that Abraham took up that hill with his son Isaac, on the other side of that hill, he couldn't see it, but there was a ram moving closer and closer. The very thing he needed was on the other side of his obedience. The very thing he needed was on the other side of his next step. You don't see it yet. You don't know how God's going to provide. You don't know how God's going to meet you. But just take the step. Take the next step up that hill. And even if you don't understand it, you hold nothing back. And watch what God does and how he meets you. I mean, you're, you're sitting in a miracle, River City Church. You're sitting in a, like a thousand miracles. <laughs> I want you to catch this last point. Jason, if you and the team want to get ready. Number four is live on mission. Let's go back to the story of Moses before we go. Live on mission. God comes to Moses in the burning bush. He catches, God, he catches Moses' attention. Moses draws near to the burning bush and responds to the presence of God. And, and God says, this is holy ground. And the very next thing, as God begins to reveal himself to Moses is that God tells Moses something very important. He says, I've heard the cries of my people. Verse 9, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God's saying, I've heard the cry, I see the need, and I'm calling you. A holy God is calling a set-apart people to make a difference in the world. And I've found the only way to find true and lasting fulfillment in life is to do the thing I'm created for. To live for more than just a bigger house, better car, better position, better job. All that's fine. That's a, but, but you live for something more. And it's a mission. Every person alive has a calling from God. God sees a need on the earth, and he calls a man, and he calls a woman. He fills them with his spirit, and he cuts them loose. Moses, you're 80. You don't feel qualified. You don't think you have what it takes. You have everything you need. Because I've chosen you. I've called you. This is what do you have in your hand? He's got, well, I've just got the shepherd's staff. It's nothing special. He says, lay it down. God changes that staff that's laid down into a serpent, and this whole sign happens for God to display his power and say, God, he's, he's letting Moses know, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use your ordinary life to do something extraordinary. You think you're on the backside of the desert, but you're at the mountain of God. And this is important for us, church, because every invitation to the presence of God is an invitation into the mission of God. To do what we're created for. I don't want to just live a common life. I want to, I want to live an uncommon life, set apart for God, on fire for God. Living for more than just myself, but living to fulfill the heart of God and the mission of God on the earth. Would you stand to your feet? God's cure for the common life starts with an encounter with Jesus. 
And all of us have a history. All of us have a mess we bring. Ashes. But the amazing thing about God is he doesn't examine whether or not we're qualified and worthy. He looks at the offering of his son on a cross. He says, you're forgiven, you're loved, you're accepted, and you're chosen. A holy people, a special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his light. I'm asking you to bow your heads, close your eyes. We'll be out here in just a moment. I went a little bit longer, but I want to take a moment tonight for you to respond, not to a message, but to a burning bush, to the presence of the King, to the presence of Him who's holy, but who invites you close, who sees everything, but loves you more than anyone ever would. He says, I've chosen you, just like he chose Moses. He's chosen you, and you have a purpose. But it all starts with a yes to Jesus. Because God did not hold back his own son for you and for me. And we respond with worship. We respond with adoration. And I believe tonight there's some people right here in this room who recognize God's calling you to more. God's calling you to something above where you've been. Something uncommon. Stop scrolling and looking at everybody else. You're not called to be them. You're called to something uncommon. You can't find it in anybody else's life because it's not for them, it's for you. <laughs> Tonight, maybe the Holy Spirit's already speaking to you of some things to lay down, some areas to trust Him, some places to surrender, some steps of faith and obedience to take. Can I just remind you every step up that mountain, the ram, the provision, the answer, the miracle you need, the promise of God. It's, it's coming up the other side. And God's going to meet you as you respond. Right now, wherever you're at, if you feel like God's calling you to something higher, something uncommon, maybe speaking to your heart already about something that you're to do, to change, whatever it is, just hold nothing back to Jesus. We're not, we're not asking what it is. This is between you and God. But right where you're at, as a yes to Jesus, just lift your hands to him. You say, God, I'm, I'm holding nothing back. I'm giving you my yes. I'm taking a step up that hill, and I'm responding. Don't wait. Don't talk yourself out of it. Just give Jesus a yes and watch what he'll do. Watch what he'll do. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Come on, maybe you got to get your passion back. You need God to reignite something. Maybe you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You need to be filled with God's strength, His power, His grace, His fire. Jesus.
Jesus, we love you. We worship you. God, I thank you that we're a holy people set apart for God's purpose. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus. Somebody, God, right now, God's going to begin to give you ideas, vision, and direction. He's going to give you a picture or put something in your heart. <laughs> Some of you are ready to quit. Watch. Let God speak to you. Let God speak to you. I've had so many times I thought I was done. But then I got near the burning bush. <laughs> I got in the presence of God. And the Holy Spirit would awaken something on the inside. Say, no, no, you're not done. I've called you to more. Jesus, we love you. We worship you. Thank you, Lord. We trust this message encourages you in faith and in your relationship with Jesus. To learn more about River City Church, find us on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co.